So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where uh, we are right now. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as Jim was earlier today, so I'll be ready to turn there in just a moment. A special thanks to Dr. Ferguson as he brought our Mother's Day message, a big blessing to me personally to hear him teach. And so uh, we're grateful for you, Jim. Thank you for bringing that message last Sunday. And let me encourage you, of course, to be in the Word each day. The Lord designed for His Word to be your bread each day and not just on Sunday. So don't just come and check in with a message and maybe Sunday school and think you're okay because you'd be no better off than having one meal on the weekend and going through the rest of the week with no physical food than you are spiritually going one meal on the weekend and no spiritual food throughout the week. So if you don't have a regular Bible reading calendar, let us provide you with one on the, on the welcome table outside. You can find Together in the Word. It's a calendar that many of us use, one that I use personally for my own uh, Bible reading. So let me encourage you to grab one and make it your habit this, this year to uh, go through the Bible cover to cover and then just start again. This time next year you will have completed the Bible and all the richness and the blessing and the wisdom uh, that will, is there will begin to be yours. And so let me encourage you to do that. God's plan for a healthy church study through the books of first and second Corinthians so you're going to be in Corinthians for a while beloved I think you already you've already resigned yourself to that fact and so uh, it's a blessing though for us to be back in the word today the resurrection transformation a new body is really our focus as we look at first Corinthians 15 35 and following and last time we were together we were making our way through this fifth section of first Corinthians 15 that focuses on the fundamental nature of the resurrection what will happen how it will happen, and what will the resurrection look like. And uh, resurrection transformation of our fleshly bodies, the, uh, you know, he answers the question, uh, what should I expect? What should I expect in a resurrection body? And I'm giving you some uh, pictures that kind of illustrate that for us. And it appears that, you know, Paul appears to be reminding the Corinthians of the resurrection hope way back in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. I'd like you to look there if you would. Uh, and this perhaps was some of your experience just last week. But uh, part of the benefit of being a saint, Paul talks about something very important uh, that has to do with what we're talking about. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. We're going to be in verse 15, uh, chapter 15 in just a moment. But Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, 7. Listen to the words, and I think that they will really resonate with you and be a blessing to you this morning. He says this, awaiting eagerly the what? The revelation, that's right, of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So very, from the very beginning, as Paul is talking about the blessings of being a saint, he begins to talk about this revelation of Jesus Christ. We are awaiting, he says, eagerly, the apocalypse and the revelation, the revealing, the ex exposing of who he really is, which will have such a big impact on believer and non-believer alike. When Christ is revealed, it's going to have a huge impact on the world. Those who've trusted Christ as their Savior, those who have not. And so awaiting eagerly, the revealing, the exposing of who he really is, and, and that eagerly awaiting, I think, really describes a believer, doesn't it? Does that describe you? At, at your core, I mean, you're busy with your life and, and taking care of your family and all those things, and the Lord knows that you need to do those. Matthew 6 is very clear about that. But really at your core, you are eagerly awaiting, are you not? That defines the believer, I think, perhaps better than any other thing. We have some jobs to do, the scripture's given us to do. We have a great commission to carry out. We have great commandments to live out. But at the core of, a, of the believer really is 
an eager expectation, right? We eagerly await, and we're busy to that end, which really reveals the sincerity of our expectation. I mean, we can say, oh, I'm waiting for Christ to come, like wicked Israel did, you remember? They say, oh, the coming of the Lord, oh, the temple of the Lord, oh, the temple of the Lord. And Isaiah's like, what do you think that actually means when you're walking far from him and being and practicing idolatry. That's not going to be a good day. It's going to be a bad day. But as a believer, when you're really sincerely pursuing those things that reveal that you're expecting the return of Christ, you love his appearing, if you will, which is one of the crowns in the New Testament to those who love his appearing, that means that you're just living that way, right? In, In the midst of your busy life and all that you're doing, you're living in such a way that you expect Christ to return. That's the essence of that. It defines Christianity, I think, as well as anything. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23, Paul reminded them of that day, that revelation when he said, for as in Adam all die, come on, get with me now, so also in Christ all will be made alive. We've read that 27 times, so you should know that by heart. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and and after that, those who are Christ at his appearing. And so Paul says, listen, that's the day. That's the day everything gets summed up. That's the day believers Uh, look forward to it really defines who we are in the very core of our being that's what we expect and in some ways as we learn more and more about the return of christ we feel a lot like john you know when jesus says you know i'm coming and then he says it over again in revelation i'm coming and then he says he's coming then he says he's coming and then he says another time and then in revelation 22 20 he who testifies these things says yes i'm coming quickly what's john say even so lord come right i mean jesus says he's going to come he says he's going to come he says he's going to come we read about that you know, for an Adam all dies, so Christ will be made alive, each in his own order. Christ the first fruits after those who are Christ that is coming. Yes, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we just say together, even so, Lord Jesus, just come. I mean, you've got a better plan even than this. And he's given us some, some wonderful things here, hasn't he? Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And, and that's future for sure, but it's here now. And I'm not talking about prosperity theology. I'm just saying that you can be very content even in the most difficult of circumstances. Why? Because you have an inner peace and a future security and expectation that won't be like those pictures that we just looked at. You know, I was in, Wal- I was in McDonald's the other day. I hate to even admit this. That from time to time I do go. But how, many got stuck, how many got stuck in traffic coming home? I, I don't know. Maybe it was, it was, it was Thursday. It was this Thursday? Yeah. Uh, Bill knows because I called Bill and he was stuck in traffic a mile ahead of me. So we were sitting on 221 both together. But anyway, so we were just sitting in traffic and, and the boys just got out of practice, so they were hungry. And so we just said, we might as well just sit at McDonald's as mad as, as to sit in practice, right? I mean, that's a good reason as any to stop at McDonald's, uh, just sit in tra- uh, traffic. So I'm sitting there, I get in there and, and they've got a whole bunch of new things at McDonald's. I don't know if you've been in there, you may, you're not gonna admit it, but anyway. <laughs> if you've been in there, you know they've got a whole bunch of new things. They're trying to appeal to people who, who try to eat better, okay? And so they have a grilled chicken, on, on, a, on a, you know, a lot more healthy roll and just all that other stuff. So I asked for that. And it's, it's expensive. I mean, I think it's expensive. You're going to fast food restaurant. So I asked the girl, I said, what's your favorite thing on this new healthy menu? She, she said this. And I said, well, that's what I was going to pick. So I, and I said this, honestly said this. Does it look like the picture? That's what I said. She goes, yes, it does. Now, what do you think? My expectations are pretty high. So we're waiting there. Now, this is a McDonald's that it doesn't matter if you go in and get creamer for your coffee. You're waiting 20 minutes. So you probably know what McDonald's it is. So I'm not going to say. But anyway, you go and wait. You get creamer for your coffee. You're going to wait forever. So I'm waiting for. I'm waiting forever. Seriously, I'm sitting there. It's 20 minutes in. And so they bring the tray up. And so I just pop it open. Let me tell you, it did. It did not look like the picture. 
And the manager was standing right there. I go, listen, I go, listen, I, you know, I get it. You guys are busy. I said, but does that look like the picture? She goes, no, it doesn't. She, puts, she actually dropped her head. She goes, no, it doesn't. I had an expectation that it was really high, and, but it wasn't, it wasn't fulfilled. And so she took it, and she made it again, and it looked better. But, and I didn't want her to, but she just said, no, no, let me do, let me do this again. So she, she did it again, and it looked better. But the fact of the matter is, we have, even in the midst of difficult times, I mean, we have an expectation, and that one is going to be everything we've dreamed about, plus, as Jim just talked about a little bit ago, all that we can't even imagine, more even than our spiritual minds right now can even grasp. And that's the idea. And the more we learn about it, and the more we hear about it, and the more we read the scriptures about it, the more we just want to stay with John, even, little, even so Lord Jesus come. And as a benefit of being a saint, we have promises for the future. In our own heart, we're awaiting eagerly the revelation. We have this expectation, and we won't be disappointed. You know, um, Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 10, he says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And then this one, mark this, beloved, for the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be, what? Will not be disappointed. You're not going to get to the end of it, regardless of where you live in the world, and perhaps the difficulties you have to endure, which were much greater than anything we could perhaps, you know, say that we've had to endure because of Christianity. Regardless of where you live in the world, the fact that you've confessed Christ and believed, you're not going to be disappointed. You're not going to say at the end, wow, that wasn't worth it. That's not, that's not one of those end results that's going to actually be a reality. And we know that inside, don't we? We have that assurance. We, we understand that to be true. And one of the benefits of being a Christian is an expectation. I have a hope. You've got a hope, right? I mean, you, it's, it's there in you. It's part of who you are. And, and that translates to the fact that I'm really not worried. I have an expectation. I have a hope. So I don't worry about what's going to happen in the world ultimately. Does it make its way that, that far into your life that you don't really worry about what's going to happen in the world? Because I know God's going to take care of his own. Do you know that? Do you know that God's going to take care of his own, beloved? I mean, I care what happens in the world from the world's perspective, so I'm involved as much as I can be and as I think I should be. I'm voting and, and putting my opinion out there and that kind of thing. Being salt and light, we should be doing that. But, you know, it doesn't, whatever happens, it doesn't threaten my security. I'm not worried, ultimately, that something's going to happen that's going to steal away my hope because nothing's going to happen that's going to take that away. I have an expectation that God is going to straighten everything out. Do you have that expectation? I remember growing up, maybe some of you who are my age, you heard your mom say, like when you did something wrong, and I didn't do things wrong that often. But um, actually, I did things wrong all the time, and I got a board worn out on my rear end and then remade and worn out again. Uh, but, you know, when you're sitting, you get in trouble with your mom, and your dad's working. And so, and maybe this happens for some of you guys now, your mom will say, Go to your room, and your dad's going to straighten all this out when he gets home. I mean, that's the worst possible sentence you can hear as a kid. Your dad's going to straighten all this out when he gets home. It's like, can't we just straighten it out right now, Mom? Let's just, just get it straight right now. Whatever you need to do, let's just take care of it. Because I really would rather not wait till my dad got home and, and take care of it. And, but the idea there is, I think, it, it translates to how really I, what I really think about it. I mean, I don't have to know who said what in Washington. I don't have to... I don't have to have all the truth. I don't have to figure out who's telling a lie and who's telling the truth and whether the media is producing uh, things that aren't true and then magnifying them. I don't have to know all of that, see, because ultimately I know that the Lord's going to straighten all that out, isn't he? And we have that hope. 
and I'm waiting for Jesus to come, and I believe he's coming. Now, there's a couple of things that happen if we have that hope of revelation, not just the actual physical, uh, the, the form and the function and, the, and all of that and the mechanics of the resurrection, but there's a couple other reasons why. Just a reminder, perhaps you're going to call to mind the benefits of the revelation of Jesus with his appearing. The first one is this, and you can find these in your notes. Uh, it means the exaltation of Christ. The exaltation of Christ, right? I mean, I want him to come because he's going to be exalted when he comes, and he's worthy of that, is he not? He's worthy to be exalted. In Revelation, you see him coming. He's going to come on a white horse, crowned as a king of kings and lord of lords. When he comes, he's going to be exalted, and it's time for him to be exalted. Do you agree with that? Is that in your core of your being? You want him to be exalted. He's been humiliated way too long. His name's been defamed way too long. He, he deserves to be. He's worthy of being exalted. He's going to come, and when he's revealed, not only am I going to be resurrected and receive this, this incorruptible body, but he's going to be exalted, and he's going to be glorified just like he deserves. Number two, it means the defeat of Satan, and that's a good thing too, right? Aren't you tired of all of that? When Jesus comes, he's going to defeat Satan. He's going to bind him for a 1,000 years. We saw that in Revelation 20, and at the end of that 1,000 years, he's going to let him loose for a very short time, and in doing that, beloved, he's going to show the true nature of man and fully vindicate the Lord in front of everyone. Why? Because up until that end of that thousand years, Jesus has been physically ruling on earth. He is present here. And Satan is bound. And as soon as he's released, what do men do? Rebel. I mean, Jesus physically, you could go and see him on earth. And you will. But those who come alive into the thousand-year reign of Christ out of the tribulation period, they could go to Jerusalem and see him on the throne. And no Satan could do anything during that thousand-year reign. And yet as soon as he was released, immediately there's a fraction of the population that immediately sides with him. It just vindicates everything the Lord has ever said about man, right? Because you can say, well, if I were in the garden, I'd have just told Eve, see you later, honey. Right? I mean, I wouldn't have done what she did. Or if I was Eve, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have you know... As soon as, the, as soon as the serpent spoke, I was like, okay, something's up here, and I'm not taking anything he says. See, but the fact of the matter is, the Lord is vindicated. He lets Jesus come and rule, and locks Satan away for a thousand years, and as soon as he releases them, there's plenty of people who want to rebel. So it just kind of exposes that whole thing. And so, when Jesus comes, it's going to be the defeat of Satan. He's accused believers for far too long. He's stolen, he's killed, he's destroyed, because the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, doesn't he? And he's attacked the church, and he's attacked the people of the church, and he's tried to destroy Israel for far too long. So he is going to come, and at that revelation of Jesus, as the resurrection of Jesus, and the resurrection of my body, he, he is going to be put away. Number three, we have this expectation, this anticipation that's going to be fulfilled, a hope of his coming, because it means justice for the martyrs. You know, and, and I just, I looked up a few stats for you, and you probably have seen this. This is on uh, opendoors.org. But anyway, I'm just going to give you a few statistics. And the media typically doesn't carry this unless you go to an alternative source of media. You're not going to see any of this. In the 30 years, you probably knew this, but in the 30 years previous to 1570, did you know that more than a million Protestant Christians were put to death in Europe because they desired to break away from the Catholic Church? You keep that in mind next time you hear a Catholic commercial that says, come home to the Catholic Church, okay? So we can slaughter you. That's what they should be saying. And so we can harbor Nazis and all the other things that happened over the years, okay? Do you realize that in that 30 years prior to 1570, just trying to break away from the Catholic Church, more than a million Christians were slaughtered? It's estimated that more, more Christians have been martyred in the last 50 years 
than the first 300 years of Christianity combined. Did you know that? Between 2006 and 2011, there were 145 countries where Christians were being harassed in some way because of their belief. 145 countries. Christians have a 10% greater likelihood to be harassed for their beliefs than Muslims do. And even Muslim-on-Muslim Muslim harassing. Christians still are more likely to be harassed for their beliefs. And more than twice as likely to receive harassment when compared to Judaism. So in all the hate towards uh, Israel, more than twice as likely for Christians to be hated than those who live in Jerusalem. Nearly 67% of Christians in the world today live in dangerous neighborhoods where there are natural risks to their life and their livelihood. Between 1917 and 1980, nearly 15 million Christians died while living in prison camps where they were placed because of their faith. 15 million. It's estimated right now that 100 million Christians are being persecuted for their faith around the world right now. Each month, 322 Christians are killed for their faith. Each month, on average, 322. Right now. 10 a day. 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed every month. 214. 772 forms of violence against Christians are committed every month. That's beatings, abductions, rapes, arrests, forced marriages, all those things kind of combined. 722 a month. See, we don't, we don't hear that, do we? Most of the time. If you don't look for it, you're not going to hear it. So when Christ is revealed, not only are you going to get a resurrected body fit for eternity, but there's going to be justice for the martyrs. And they deserve it, don't they? I mean, 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, we're a body, and if one part suffers, what's the other part supposed to do? Suffer with it. But we, we don't inform ourselves too much, so we, we miss out on the, the prayer that should be going in and for the, the heartache that's part of seeing other believers suffer for their faith. 2 Corinthians 1, 4, Paul writes this, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and the faith in the midst of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. So Paul says, I know you're suffering an awful lot, but remember this. After all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be. When? When is it? Revealed. When the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. There's going to come a day, beloved, along with you receiving a resurrected body and you uh, being able to be fit for eternity and be able to serve the Lord with a, with a mind and a body that are in perfect harmony. Uh, along with all that, there's coming a day when martyrs are going to be granted vengeance. Everyone who's been persecuted, everybody who's been tortured or killed for their faith in Christ will be granted justice. God says, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. And guess what? He knows exactly how to do it. And I trust him with that. Do you not? He can do it much better than I can. He, ha he understands the entire thing. He sees the whole picture. He's long-suffering. It doesn't happen, happen, have to happen right now. He knows when it needs to happen. He knows when the fullness of time has come for that to happen. And just imagine the reservoir of wrath stored behind the dam of his grace right now. Just for that. Fourth, and this really springs off number three, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It means the death of Christ-haters and rendering powerless and subjecting and punishment to all those enemies of God. And we saw that, didn't we, later in 1 Corinthians 15, 
But that's what it means. It's, it's, the, it's the end of Christ-haters. It's the end of those who have power. They're rendered powerless. It's subjugation and punishment of all the enemies of God. 2 Corinthians 1.7 says this, when the Lord will be revealed. Same wording we've been looking at, part of his revealing. The Lord's revealed. Uh, that'll be when he comes from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the same things. Did you know that? Those who don't know God are also the ones who don't obey the, the gospel. So in case you're, you know, you're wondering how you can judge that, well, you know, people can say whatever they want, but if they don't obey the basic principles of the scripture, it's pretty difficult for them to make a, a case for being a believer. And Paul's, Paul doesn't, he doesn't mince words. Those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. They're going to have eternal destruction. And then verse 10 says, when he comes, again, his revealing, when he comes to be glorified in his saints. And that's that first one we looked at, right? He's gonna, Jesus is going to come, and he's going to be glorified, he's going to be exalted, and he deserves it. And he's going to come, and he's going to receive it. He's going to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who believe. You're going to marvel, I'm going to marvel. That's a cool thing, isn't it? I'm looking forward to that, aren't you? Just marveling at his grace and at his love and his power to just work all things out for the good of those who love him. He's always said he was going to do that. And from the beginning, he's bundled you into the bundle of the righteous. Isn't that great? That's wording from, from I think, 2 Samuel. That's so great. He, he takes care of that. And you're going, to be, you're going to marvel. He's going to be marveled at among all who believe. For our testimony to you was believed. In other words, you came to faith, and this is your reality. He's coming, he's going to judge those that hate him. And one of the expectations and a sure hope that we have is that all of this mess is all going to be straightened out. And all the godless judges and all the willful presidents and all the wicked people in high places, see, and all who've covered up their wrongdoing and any of the self-absorbed dictators around the world and all a lot of ACLU lawyers and wicked professors and teachers and false preachers and anybody who's passed on atheism and wickedness and, and passed on wicked laws and, and, you know, undermined justice, all that stuff, see, if they remain in their unredeemed state, Jesus knows exactly what to do with all of it, see. And I take a great hope in that. Do you? That really gives me a lot of peace when I think about all the, all the stuff around going on in the world. The world's going to get some upheaval coming up. If we're coming up towards the rapture, beloved, you should, it shouldn't surprise you that everything is in a mess. You know, it doesn't stop me from being salt and light now, but I know and I hope, see, that, that Jesus will take care of all that. And fifthly and finally, the revealing of Jesus means bodily resurrection with a body made for eternity for me. And th this kind of segues right back into where we've been in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, I don't deserve that, but I'll take it. I'm sure you feel the same way, right? You get a body built for eternity for you. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve that. But by grace, I'll get to be like Jesus. By grace, I'll be finished serving as an under-shepherd, and you'll be finished serving in the, in the vocations that you have. By grace, when I see him, I'm going to be like him. See, I don't deserve that. I look forward to it because it's part of his revealing. See, and, and when I shall see him, I shall be like him. John says in 1 John 3, 2, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God. So that's your reality. You're a child of God if you've come to faith. And it's not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we will see him just as he is. So you don't get the exact shape. John, I think Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 does a good job of, of the, of the uh, mechanics and the form talking about the seed and the plant and heavenly bodies and all that kind of stuff. So you get an idea in all these passages, you just kind of 
assimilate those all together and you just begin to get this sure hope that there's a lot of great things awaiting you. This is your hope, see, at his revealing. And I don't deserve that. I'll gladly accept his grace. I look for his coming. I am, as, you sh as I'm sure you are, awaiting eagerly the revelation with the reality of all that means, waiting for the future. And so when Paul says in his introductory remarks in 1 Corinthians 1.8, he says this, who will also confirm you to the end. This is so great. Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, when Christ is revealed, he's going to confirm you. That word confirm, future, active, indicative. Jesus, and literally it's establish you. Jesus will establish you. Debeose. Same root word Paul uses in verse 6. Verse 6, the testimony of Christ was, he says, confirmed in you. Same word. Eris passive indicative. In, in the past, with continuing results, you believed, you confessed the gospel. So the gospel was confirmed, the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So in the past, you believed, confessed the gospel. The gospel went to work in you and was confirmed apart from you. You began to bear fruit by the Holy Spirit, and the gospel was confirmed that it actually took root. See? So established, confirmed, verified, if you will. And then in verse 8, we see the same root verb where it speaks of the future. Who will confirm you to the end. When something's finished, when it comes to its close, the completion of all things. So Christ is going to confirm his own, and he's going to establish them at the end of all things. See, we saw in chapter 15, verse 24, that the end comes when Jesus hands over the kingdom to, to God, right? He's, he's subjugated everyone. He's brought all rulers under his feet. He's Everybody who's hated God all brought down, and then he takes all of that, he bundles it all up, and he, and he put everybody where they're supposed to be, and everybody gets the names back that they're supposed to have, then he hands the kingdom over to God, see? So we know when the end is, and he is going to confirm you to that end, blameless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, see? And this, that's a great word, blameless. It's an interesting compound adverb, actually. Angelkletos, first word, the first word, alpha, it's, it's modified, of course, as it's moved into that adverb, but alpha, which just means the beginning, so from the beginning until now, all the way through, second word, enklaeo, refers to bringing a charge or being accused, so used together, they're in the accusative sense here, so it just means unable to be called into account, unable to be called into account, unable to be reproved, this is going to belong to you, see, he's going to confirm you to the end, here's that great word, blameless, unable to be reproved, unable to be called into account, that's going to belong to you, see? When you're raised with your new body, it's such a marvelous understatement to just say you're blameless. I mean, we saw last time from 1 Corinthians 15, 42, so also is the resurrection from the dead, so in a perishable body raised an imperishable one. So understand, blameless just takes in all of these things. Paul says at the beginning of the chapter, at the, at, way back at the beginning of the book, he says, listen, you're going to be raised He's going to confirm you to the end, blameless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw some very important principles that illustrate Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 1.8. And the first one was this. Unlike your experience in this life, battling disease, battling sickness, battling old age, battling infirmity, consequences of personal sin, all the things that kind of add up on the body as you get to the end of your physical life, the sin of Adam, all that stuff, your resurrected body is going to have no remnant of any corruption, no, no process of perishing. There's be no, you're going to be blameless, see? In that respect, the whole of human life manifests corruption. Perishing is really sped up in the grave. I mean, you go to the grave and obviously, you know, you just see, if you've watched Indiana Jones, you know, you can watch that like, you know, 
he drank, he chose the wrong cup, he chose poorly, and then you just see, you know, it's sped up. But that's the idea, see. Even while we're living, we're living in this process of corruption, and we have the effects of sin on our life, and so we'll go into the grave corrupt, but we'll come out incorruptible. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 8, blameless, see. You'll be established blameless, confirmed blameless. Paul says at the very beginning of his letter to the church, listen, you're going to be confirmed, you're going to be established, you're going to be blameless in every sense of the world. Word. When man rebelled, there was a shame, there was a disgrace. Adam dishonored, and he damaged this, this marvelous image that God created him in. And so the majority of the life of man since the fall of Adam is dishonoring to the image of God. I mean, just think about your life. Think about my life. I mean, think about the things that you've done. And we're, we're really good at selective memory. We just remember the good stuff. We don't remember the bad stuff. But just try to be open about that and the stuff that you've messed up, okay? You've dishonored the image of God. you dishonored the creation of God. All that kind of stuff. It plays into your, your fleshly body, see? And Paul says, in the resurrection, it is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. See, so the second important point Paul made was that unlike your experience of continually missing the mark and bringing disgrace on God who made you, the resurrected body will be capable of the glory God intended for you from the start. No more dishonor. Paul illustrates it further, what it means to be confirmed or established blameless when he says that the earthly body is sown in weakness and it's raised in power. And that transition principle number seven was this. Unlike your familiarity with your limitations and you're being victimized by so many things outside your control and all that stuff, the reality of your life in the resurrection, you'll be able to be established with all the power God designed for the human to possess, and no more dishonor, and no more, no remnant of corruption. And then he says in verse 44, he says, so in a natural body, raised a spiritual body. The body that's going to be put in the ground was a body that was suited for this world, and the body that's going to come out is going to be a body suited for the next. See? And so Jesus, so Jesus, Paul says in his opening comments, will confirm you. He's going to settle you. He's going to make sure in you. He's going to establish you in blamelessness. And what will we do with all of that? 1 Corinthians 1, 8. Look back there. When is he going to do all of that? Well, it's the exact same thing he's been saying as we got to 1 Corinthians 15. He says this. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to establish you blameless to the end. That day of the last day, if you will, of this present age. You may live to see that. Did you know that? You live in a time where biblical prophecy seems to be coming very up to a point. You, you may live to see that day. When he comes to confirm you, he will settle you. He's going to make you steadfast until the end. He's going to raise you and you'll be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord, the day of Christ. The combination of terms really just means the time of Christ's return likely pointing to his glorious return, which is one that we look forward to, but certainly it includes the rapture of the church because, mark this, he will be revealed to the church at that time, won't he? He's going to be revealed to the rest of the world that his glorious appearing, but he's going to be revealed to the church at that time, so that, that point is not exclusive to the glorious appearing of Christ. It can be the rapture of the church, and if you go with him, that certainly confirms your blamelessness. If you get raptured, that confirms it beyond any other doubt, right? If you get taken up with the church, you're blameless. Because otherwise you're not going and you're going to stay here. But when he comes in his glorious return to the earth, everyone will know. And that's some kind of promise, isn't it? And we're eagerly awaiting that, aren't we? We have an expectation and it won't be disappointed. And you can see why. If when, and listen, if when he came... 
he was going to flash all your failures everywhere and say, uh-oh, you know, we've got some problems. we got some problems here, okay? If that's what he was going to do, big jumbotron, every failure, okay, this is a problem we haven't dealt with, then we probably wouldn't be looking forward with great expectation to seeing Christ's second return, would we? I mean, would you? I'm not, I wouldn't be thrilled about all of that, okay? Now, there's going to be a beam of seat judgment for the saints, and we've looked at that. And it's going to show how we used the faith we were given and what we did with our time and how we built on the foundation of Christ, which everyone received at salvation. And that's likely going to be during the tribulation time on earth, perhaps. So we'll be going through all of that when the tribulation time is occurring. But when we get to the end, even when you start the beam of seat judgment, what do you know what's true about the end? You get a robe of righteousness. Whether any of your spiritual house made it through the fire is irrelevant, isn't it? Because when it comes to the end, there isn't a question about when you get to the end, they're like, nope, you didn't make the mark. You're out. That's not the case, is it? The BBC judgment is for believers. How did you build on the foundation of Christ? Let's look at everything you did. Because on earth, it's deceptive. And we can't discern, we can't discern one another's buildings, can we? We might think it all looks like gold. I mean, I know a few people in here, I just think everything they've done has got to be gold. They're going to have a mansion. It's going to be huge, and it's going to be made of costly stone, and it's going to be made of gold and silver. But we don't know, do we? And so the Lord knows, but at the end, there's not a question about whether you make it through. You do. You might make it through like someone who came through a house fire. You might not have anything except the clothes that you're wearing, and Christ will give those to you. Or you may make it through with a lot. But the fact of the matter is, there's not a question about whether you're making it through. So we earnestly expect that to be. And it shouldn't surprise us either that the one who's given us all of the resources to do what we can do should eventually say, now there's going to be an accounting time. Okay, I gave you all these abilities. I gave you these talents. I, I've given you this amount of money. I've given you this amount of ability, whatever it was, intellectual ability, you know, mental ability, physical ability. I've given you all of this stuff. Now I'm going to call that all back and I'm going to say, okay, how did you use that to build on the on the firm foundation. And that shouldn't surprise us that he wants an accounting. That, that should be exciting to us and motivational. And so when we get to the end, there's not a question about, you know, uh-oh. Paul says this, you know, we're going we're we're to go into the judgment relying on the, on the blood of Christ and we're going to come out of the judgment and what are we going to be relying on? The blood of Christ. That doesn't change. And everyone who's there knows it's going to be the same for them. So no one's sitting back there while you're getting judged going, aha, I knew it. Nobody's doing that because why? Their turn's coming, right? They get up next. So Paul says that we're eagerly waiting for his return because at the end, I'll be in on that day, right? And I'll be there because I'm blameless to the end. I'm confirmed, I'm settled, I'm secure. I'm blameless till then. And I'm going to be raised incorruptible. And just get a grip on that promise. How many sins are going to be held up against you when Jesus comes? How many, beloved? None. Get that in your mind, okay? Live that way. None. You say, well, that's amazing. Yes, it is. When the day of our Lord Jesus Christ comes, he's going to present to the Father a chaste bride. Isn't he? Without spot, Ephesians 5 says, and without blemish. That's you. That's your reality. If you've come to faith. He's going to say, here's Parker, blameless. Wow. That's fantastic. 
And you see that's a positional truth, isn't it? Blameless. And isn't that a great cry? You know who that is? We prayed for him, didn't we? So glad to hear him. Now, how can we be so sure about that? Paul's going to give us some transformation principles on this, too, in chapter 15. But in chapter 1, 9, he says this, God is faithful. So how do we know for sure that all this is true? God's faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God's faithful, see? And as a saint, you have a God, the one true God, who's faithful. Isn't that marvelous? That's how you know all this is true, because God's faithful. Am I faithful? Not always not as much as I'd like. A lot less than I'd like, to be honest. But God's faithful, and he called you into communion with his son, and he's going to keep you, see? And if you got there by grace, you're going to be kept there by grace. See, what, what can you do to get out of grace? He started his relationship with you by his faithfulness, and he will continue his relationship with you by his faithfulness. And you know how you can know that when you get to the end of all things, you're going to be found blameless? Because God was before all things, and he's at the end of all things, and he's faithful. And he told me that because I live, you'll live also, and he was raised, so I will be too. See, because if he promised it once, he never has to promise it to me again. Because he's faithful to keep his promises. Listen, mark this, beloved. If he told me he would raise me, it's because he wanted to raise me. Okay? And if he wanted to raise me, he will. Because who's going to stop him? And he'll keep me there after he raises me. If he wanted to raise you, beloved, then he will. And he does. And he said he would. And he sent his son and raised him to prove that he had power over death. You're going to be raised blameless. How do I know? Because God's faithful. And he was at the beginning, and he's at the end, and he's the one who wanted me, and he's the one that keeps me. And he doesn't change his mind. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, sure. That's a great prayer. <laughs> you know, I pray that too. You know, I want to be completely holy in my conduct, right? In... in I mean, I know where I am positionally, but as I work my life out, I, I want to be that way. Sanctify me entirely. That's where it ends, right? But, you know, is this what we have to pray? Oh, Lord, please preserve me. You know, like there's some chance he's not. Please preserve my spirit. You know, make sure I'm ready. You know, make sure I'm, you can take me when I get here. That's oh, my hope. You know, let me, let me do the things I need to do so... You know, when you, when you come, uh, you're going you're gonna to be finding me blameless. That's not how it is, is it? Faithful is he who calls you and, what's the rest? And he also will, what? If you're a saint, you're going to end up at the judgment throne of the Lord, absolutely holy, and spend eternity with him in his holy presence, with a resurrected body, knows no corruption, knows no shame, no weakness, perfectly suited for eternity. And that's why Paul starts out at 1 Corinthians 1, 4 and says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. How big is that grace? Oh my. I mean, we just start digging in and it's like, wow. We just talk about grace so well. Yeah, I, I got in by grace. Yeah, how big was that? And what does that mean? And how far does it extend? And so when you read James 4, 14, you know, you're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Is that a big deal? 
It's not a big deal, is it? Because of Christ's resurrection, you don't really need to worry about that, do you? Because we have this earnest expectation because God has this wonderful new thing planned for us. And the Holy Spirit carried Paul along to foreshadow all of this in his opening comments. And so when he gets into chapter 15 and he's dealing with, with errors relating to the resurrection. And he has people in the church, you know, denying the resurrection. He wants them to see all of this expectation, all this hope is contingent on Christ's resurrection. Every hope, every blessing, every promise. See, forgiveness of sin and fulfillment in life and, and the wrapping up of all things and the redemption of our bodies. And the establishing and confirming of those who are in Christ. See, the punishment of wickedness. And, and you know, everything rises and falls with the resurrection. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 44 reminds the church at Corinth. Look there now. You can flip over to 1 Corinthians 15, 44. And we'll actually start our message right now. Just kidding. If there's a natural body, there's a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's a spiritual body. It's just that certain. Transformation principle number nine, as certain as you are of your life here, the same certainty you should have of the next. Paul says back in 1 Corinthians 1, 8, how can we know? How can we know all this is going to be, you're going to be blameless because God's faithful. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 44, how do we know this is for sure going to happen? Just as sure as you are that you live here right now in a natural body, you should be just that sure that there's a spiritual body and all this is true. See, Paul just always gives this verification over and over again. How do we know this is true? Here's how we know it's true. See. If there's a natural body, there's a, if there's a natural body, there's a spiritual body. As sure as you're alive today, you're going to be brought back to life at the resurrection of the just or the resurrection of the unjust, the first and second resurrection. Just as sure as you live today, that will for sure be your reality for tomorrow. And now Paul has put together this fantastic list of principles that has helped the church to see the central nature of the resurrection. Starting in verse 34, he's answered the scoffers and the mockers and given the mechanics and the form of the believer's bodily resurrection. And now he's going to appeal to the scriptures. And this is not something new, in other words, that I've thought up, Paul is essentially saying. He, a few verses ago, he pointed out, you know, that the seed and the plant, that's a great illustration of the resurrection. The different types of animals of animal flesh, fish, and birds, and all of that. That's a, that's a picture of the resurrection and God's creativity. He's not limited to one certain kind of flesh. He can make flesh for the water. He can make flesh for the air. He can make flesh for the ground, okay? So he's not, he's not messing, you know, he, he just, he's taking them through step by step. Listen, seed and plant illustrates it. Different kinds of animals, fish, and birds illustrate it. Different types of heavenly bodies illustrate it. And the way they differ from one another illustrates the resurrection. It illustrates the mechanics illustrates the form of the resurrection. And now he says, and scripture has always indicated this to be true. So look at verse 45. So also it was written, or it is written rather, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. So Paul's gone through all these other illustrations to show the mechanics and the form of the resurrection. And now he says, and by the way, it's also written. Scripture says it. This is very Paul, isn't it? Pauline. He gives a lot of illustrations, but he always comes back and says, by the way, I'm, just, I'm not just making this up. This isn't off the top of my head. This is already there. You can see this from the beginning. So Paul appeals to Scripture to clinch the argument. Paul refers to Genesis 2-7, which is up there. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So for clarity then, Paul inserts first before man. So in verse 45 it says, so also it's written the first man. So Paul inserts that. And Adam after it. So he says the first man, Adam, in Genesis 2, 7, he says the Lord God formed man. And doesn't put Adam right there, but we know who it is. 
So Paul's not changing the scriptures, just clarifying the passage he's pulling out. So his point appears to be that the characteristic of man from the very beginning is a soul, a living being. That's the idea. God made man a living being. He was the, it was, that was true of Adam. It's true of all his descendants. And we've examined many times that that first Adam passed on his nature to those who came after him, certainly after the fall, the sin principle that was introduced into humanity by Adam, that was passed down too. We get that, okay? Adam was a living being. Everybody else after Adam, a living being. And Adam, the sin principle was at work in Adam through his sin. That got passed down as well. But I don't think that's Paul's point here. Here, here the emphasis is on the physical body. God created Adam as a physical body made for the earth. And then he says this. Look back at verse 45. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, verse 46, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. So, who's Paul speaking about? Now. He's speaking about Jesus. That's just obvious, right? It just flows right in there. That's been his topic all along. And he's gone through the seed and the plant. He's gone through the different kinds of flesh. He's gone through heavenly bodies and the mechanics and form of the resurrection. And he just, then he's giving an example from the scripture. It's always like this. There's physical and then there's spiritual. And he says scripture has indicated that from the beginning. So, last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the, first, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. So he's speaking about Jesus. And we've seen Paul do this in Romans 5 with the first Adam and the last Adam. So this is not a new illustration for Paul, and it's not new to us. And I think the way to see the passage then is to understand that when Jesus was born, he was in every sense what? Human. I mean, when he was born, was he not? That's, that's the essence of the incarnation, isn't it, beloved? When he was born, he was in every sense human. Now, he didn't have the headship of Adam passed down to us, uh, to, to him, because Eve was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus was born without Adam's headship. So no inheritance in nature. But other than that, he was in every aspect human. I think the scripture makes that abundantly clear. We don't have to prove that. We've seen that over and over again. I think Luke 2 indicates that Jesus grew like any other kid grew, right? It would, and so it would follow that, that the process, you know, continued as he became a man. Hebrews 4.15 would seem to indicate that. He had weaknesses. We have a high priest that's acquainted with our weaknesses. How is he acquainted with our weaknesses, beloved? Because he lived life as a human being. He understood the pressures that are on people. He understood how the world works, all that kind of stuff, the frailty of the flesh. Of the flesh. So we have a high priest that's sympathetic with us. That's great, isn't it? He had weaknesses, and now he's a high priest forever. He can relate to us. He knows that we're clay. So scripture also seems to indicate that Jesus' body was, uh, in, was some way transformed into a glorified body when he came out of the grave. It wasn't the same as the body previous to the one that went in the grave. And, and Paul makes that point twice here, verse 45 and 46. He became a life-giving spirit, he says. And then he says, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And that applied to Jesus too. Jesus had the natural body, then he had the spiritual body. Jesus was able to appear, remember, to his disciples in a room where the door was shut. And he came in, and that was different than the body he had before. He wasn't coming through a wall or a door before, was he? He had to knock and open the door like everyone else. But when he was resurrected, what did he do? He appeared to them. So there was some change. And you can't be dogmatic about it, can you? But you, you have to see that there is obviously some change. John 12, 23 says this. And Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be, what is it? Am I there? Glorified, yes. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, 
It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Who's he talking about? Himself. That's right. He's talking about himself. He was natural first, and he knew that he was going to have to go into the grave and die. And when he came up, and this is just exactly like Paul's illustration, isn't it? The grain goes in, and what comes up is not the same as what was put in. He knew there was going to be a transformation. Jesus knew. He knew the limitations of the body of flesh he started with, and there was going to be a change. And as a footnote, you know, I believe the study of the Shroud of Turin, and there's many in here who know a lot more about that, but that indicates some kind of transformation occurred at that moment, perhaps recorded on the image of the cloth. If you've read anything about that, you perhaps know that. But when he went into the grave, there was the burial of that old body, and what came out of the grave was in some ways a very unique body. It was different enough that, you know, we see that maybe that's the reason why nobody fully recognized him uh, unless he opened their eyes. Now, we know that he was kind of hiding himself from them, so he was creating a blindness there. But it wasn't that he was so different, right? Because when his disciples recognized him, when he allowed them to see him for who he really was, I mean, they identified him easily by his scars, didn't they? And his voice and all of that. He's sitting on the land and his disciples are coming up and they are uh, in a boat and they see him cooking fish and he asked them how they did. Did they catch anything? Do they recognize him? Of course, they, they recognize his voice. So it wasn't that he was hugely different, but there was some difference. So, all that transformation after the resurrection. Romans 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So there's, you know, not only did he have a new physical body, he also had bestowed on him the spirit of life. The ability to guarantee freedom from sin and death. So transformation principle number 10, the spiritual, the scriptural rather, record of Adam and Jesus have always illustrated the process of the resurrection. That's Paul's point. Adam, natural, and then in the end, Jesus, spiritual. Jesus, when he came to earth, natural, and then when he was resurrected, spiritual. Paul says, listen, that gives you the mechanics, and that gives you the form. Again, like the seed and the plant, like the tips of types of flesh, like the different types of heavenly bodies, all those kinds of things, Paul says, and the scripture has always indicated what this transformation principle is going to look like. The scriptures always record Adam and Jesus always illustrating the process of the resurrection. And so, 1 Corinthians 1.7, we are awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are we? Sure. Are we sure of it? Absolutely sure of it. Why? Because God is faithful. He was at the beginning and he's at the end. Why? Because if you're in a physical body, there's also a spiritual body. Why? Because the seed and the flower have always indicated how that works. And the different kinds of flesh show God's creativity. He's not, he's not trapped in a one kind of manufacturing model, is he? He can break that mold anytime he wants. He can retool the shop and turn out whatever he wants to turn out. The different types of heavenly bodies, they always have illustrated the glory of the resurrection and God's ability to create all different kinds of things. So how sure are we? We have a great expectation, don't we? Awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, what? Blameless. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, because God is faithful. That is the expectation that will be met to a fuller degree than we can possibly imagine, beloved. As faithful as he called you, who will also bring it to pass. Amen? Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer.
Lord, we thank you for an opportunity today to be in your word. We thank you for the joy of this, these, these passages. They are remarkable in every sense. It's an encouragement to me personally to read these and study them and to look at the world and just be, in a very real sense, not concerned. On the one hand, it's a sweetness that is beyond any other sweetness, knowing that you're going to take care of all these things, Father, that you have sent your son and he has been raised and we have security and because he raised, I'll, I'll be raised. And you're going to come and you're going to, and you're going to correct all those and you're going to, you're going to put, put down all the, all the Christ haters. He's going to put down all the Christ haters and all the ones that raise himself up against the knowledge of Christ. And, and, uh, and Christ is going to be glorified in all those things. That's a sweetness beyond all imagination. It's the joy that's in our heart always. It really defines who we are. And then on the other side, really, it, it is, there's, a, there's a bitterness there, much like the prophets who were told to take the word and eat it. And initially it was sweet to the taste, but bitter. It's bitter because we understand that those who have not professed Christ, you've not come and confessed and believed, they will be cast away. That's, there's a bitterness there because that includes some of my family and some of the family of the, of the beloved here. And so, Father, we are all the more motivated to be faithful, to give out the gospel with your word, not just our experience, but your word on how to get saved because that's where the power is. Your, your gospel, Hebrews chapter 4, is the only thing that is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's the only thing that divides the soul and spirit joint and marrow. And so, Father, help us to, be get, to give your word out faithfully in witnessing as you give us opportunity and not to miss a chance. And we trust you then with all the rest of it. Even like Abraham trusted you with Sodom and Gomorrah, even if there were only 10 righteous, would you spare it? Will not the God of all creation do justly? We know that you do justly. We also know that we have a sure hope that we look forward to that day where there's going to be a blessing beyond blessing and an expectation that will be met to a fuller degree than we can even imagine. Nothing like what we experience here where, you know, the s'mores don't look like the picture. Instead, it's going to be a marvelous met expectation beyond all our wildest imagination. And, to, and we'll marvel, Father, as your scripture says, we're going to marvel. We so look forward to that day. We marvel now at your patience. Marvel now that somebody can curse you and and turn from you and say awful things about you and live to breathe another moment. And yet that's your grace, bought by Christ. Long-suffering, not willing that any perish, but all come to the knowledge of repentance. Is that you? Have you been waiting and imposing on the grace of God by rejecting his salvation? And we encourage you not to do that foolish thing any longer. Someday you will confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And you will know that God has raised him from the dead and all that will be true. And you'll stand before him as your judge. And you will weigh out all your actions, everything that you've done and what you've done with Christ. And if you have turned your back on the, on the gift of Christ on the cross, you will find yourself cast away. You'll get what you want, a godless eternity. You won't like what you get. Confess with your mouth today. Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. Not because you're afraid of eternity, which is a legitimate enough reason, but because you were made for this. You were made for that rich life that he has promised for you. He made you, and he made you to be fulfilled in Christ. Come to him today, be reconciled to him. If you want to know more about that, please see me afterwards. Take the card that's in the chair in front of you, fill it out. 
indicate what your needs are. We'll, we'll do our best to pray and, and also to meet with you and meet them. We give you praise, Father, for our time together. We thank you for tonight when we'll be back in 1 John. I'm grateful for the time we can spend in your word as we wait for your son to come. Help us to be found faithful doing the things you asked us to do. Help us not to be enamored with the world. It's so easy for that to happen, but be caught away in, in the expectation of, of your son's coming. And Lord, even so, Lord, come quickly. Pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.